Habits and Health, episode 42. Welcome to the Habits and Health podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. Brought to you by an educator and coach for anyone who wants to create a healthier life. Here's your host, Tony Winyard. Welcome to another edition of the podcast where we talk about habits and health. And my guest today is Lynn Bowman, who has been a featured speaker at Women's Expos throughout the US and has written a couple of books. One in uh, cooperation with a lady called Deirdre Hall, which was called Kitchen Close-Up. And she did a book on her own uh, earlier this year called Brownies for Breakfast, a cookbook for diabetics and the people who love them. Lynn, you wouldn't believe it by looking at her, is 75 and she's in amazing health and she's kind of reclaimed her health after some some issues that have happened throughout her life and we talk about that in this episode and how to stay healthy how to if you do have diabetes some of the things that you can do to stay healthy with diabetes so that's coming up in this episode with Lynn Bowman if you do know anyone who would get some value from this maybe anyone you know who's got diabetes please do share the episode with them and hope you enjoy this week's show Habits and Health, my guest today is Lynn Bowman. How are you, Lynn? I am really happy to talk to you, Tony. This is going to be so much fun. I know. And, and know. we're in the, we're somewhere near South uh, San Francisco today. That's right. Yep. And it's sunny and beautiful here. How about you? <laughs> no, we don't talk about weather where okay, I am. Okay. <laughs> so the woman from California, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and is there? I mean, because we spoke briefly before we started recording, and you're you're from Hollywood. Well, from in the sense that I was was born there at Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital, uh, and then grew up in the Pasadena area, which some people have heard of too for various reasons. Um, but I left uh, at about eighteen, nineteen, and um, have been pretty much gone ever since. I visit, but I am no longer uh, a Los Angelino as they say. And what drew you to where you are now? Oh, you know, I, I had a vision. (laughs) How many times have we, I, I had this crazy vision that someday I would live someplace and I would be able to say, I love where I live. And people would know my name. I would go into the bank or a store and they would say, Highland. And I had this little you know, kind of fantasy about what my life would be like. And one day I drove with a friend into this little town that I had never been in, had never even knew it was on the map and, and went, this is it. (laughs) This is that place right here. And, um, it was a matter of months before I, you know, my husband and I bought a place here. Uh, he also fell in love. It was just, it was what he calls a pattern match uh, for both of us. We just went, yeah, this is the place. And it's extraordinarily beautiful. I hope you'll come and visit and see in that the redwoods are magical. Uh, everyone now knows about redwood trees and what they are. And, and I swear they do talk to you. They do send their messages, uh, and they're magnificent. We're surrounded by trees that are about 100, 110, 15 years old. They were clear cut back then. Um, this, this wood was all cut not to make beautiful wood things out of, but to burn the Portland cement, um, factories to make cement. And every time I think about that, I'm just, it's like, wait, you walked up to these trees and went, okay, this is great fuel. That's what you thought? Because now, I mean, they're just, they're ex- so beautiful, so mystical and, and glorious. And then we have the ocean four miles from us, which is also extraordinary in every way. And growing up in LA, the idea that I could go to an ocean and there would be no one else on the beach, no one except a seal. Uh, to me, that's so magical. And that's where we live, way out in the country. And nature is very important to, to you in your life, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we're finding out, you know this, Tony, that it's also a medical thing. We actually have a need to be in trees, near trees, in mm. the ocean, near the ocean, 
on the sand. Our bodies and our minds are so chemically affected by what we look at and touch and smell. Hmm. And when you live out here among the trees, you realize that they're, there's stuff drifting down and there are odors coming out of them. And now there are a couple of wonderful new books and documentaries out about the life of trees and the language of trees and what goes on beneath the trees as the, the fung, fungi, fungi communicate with one another. Mm. It's, it's extraordinary. I mean, have you been following this? And mm-hmm. reading? um, Again, I'm because I live with them and they're, they feel like my friends. And yes, I talk to them um, the, to find out that the trees are probably talking back uh, is pretty thrilling, you know. Uh, however, when I see the truck going by full of those beautiful trees that have been harvested here, I'm now one of those people that goes, that was somebody's mom. <laughs> That tree was part of a family. Hmm. Um, and I'm laughing, but it, it's it's an interesting shift in our thinking, I think, really. Um, and what was it that, I mean, I know that you've been on quite a journey. So what, what was it that led to your sort of change in direction, I suppose you say, from, from how you were a couple of decades ago? A couple of decades? Let's see. Going to do the math. Um it's been a long kind of continual story arc, Tony, because I've always been interested in health. And and like you, I was very affected about losing my mother. I My mother died when I was 18. Hmm. So I, I learned early in my life, up close and personal, what happens to families and what happens to individuals when chronic disease uh, takes its toll. Hmm. And in the United States, particularly, it's not only you're losing this person and you've watched this person be ill for a long time and that's affected your life, but now the person is gone and you are bankrupt financially as well in the United States because these diseases cost us everything we have hmm. financially and more. Uh, and something like 85% of the bankruptcies in the country are health-driven. And it's large, it, chronic disease has a lot mm. to do with that. So as I, like you, studied, read, wanted to learn everything I could learn, and I found out how preventable chronic disease is and how curable, in many cases, chronic disease is, but not particularly with medicine. Mm. Uh, so the more you delve into that and, and then, uh, a turning point came really as recently as, uh, about two and a half years ago when I went to a, uh, a convention, a seminar given by the plantricians. Are you familiar with the plantricians? No. It's a group of MDs, medical docs, a thousand or more at this convention, there were a thousand. So I'm sure there must be thousands in the world, Mm -hmm. but kind of renegade docs who realized that they were going against the grain by realizing that they could not cure with medicine, but they could cure with food and other natural things. Mm -hmm. So, and some of them had become sort of names, Dean Ornish, kind of a big name in the, he claimed a couple of decades ago to be reversing heart disease. Hmm. A lot of people treated him like a quack. Hmm. Um, but he was a leader in this movement that now has grown and grown hmm. of these medical doctors who were trained in, is it allopathic? You call it m- the Western tradition of medicine, hmm. but got frustrated because they weren't healing. They weren't reversing disease they weren't preventing disease with the tools the medical tools that they had they wanted to mm. do more so i went to this convention a couple of years ago now and which was also kind of crazy it's like what made me do that i'm not sure i just had to go and uh for eight hours or more a day from eight in the morning until 
you know, I fell over at night. I watched PowerPoint presentations, which again, pain, you know, PowerPoint. Ah. Uh, but I sat and watched as these medical doctors from all over the world presented their data and more data and lots of data. And I realized that so much of what I had been learning for so long about diabetes, which is particularly my focus because I am a diabetic, type 2 diabetic, Mm. Um, and I didn't want to die. <laughs> I, I didn't want to become ill. So uh, I've been working on that. So my idea at that convention changed about what the big deal was with preventing and um, reversing, controlling diabetes, particularly type 2 diabetes. We had always been told it was carbohydrates, and you had to control your carbohydrates, and you shouldn't eat carbohydrates. And in a way that's not untrue, that's still somewhat true. But fact number one that I realized was it's not just a carb. Carb is not a carb. It has a great deal to do with the quality of that carbohydrate. What is that food? What Mm. exactly are you putting in your mouth? Besides the fact that it's a carbohydrate. Mm. Um, So it's like saying it used to be a calorie is a calorie. No, it's not. A calorie is not a calorie. Mm-hmm. Calories are way different uh, depending on what they're made of. But so that was item number one, that maybe it wasn't just any old carbohydrate. It was a quality. And then item number two, the big shocker was all these docs presenting data about the big thing that was behind this epidemic of type 2 diabetes the, the obvious thing, fast food, bad eating, but animal fat. The surgeons who spoke and showed their data talked about opening up nine, 10 year old kids in surgeries of various kinds and finding their veins full of plaque that comes from animal fat. You don't get mm. plaque from vegetable fat. Mm. And then in language that I couldn't possibly duplicate here and repeat for you, they explained all of the cellular uh, causes that your, your glucose, your blood glucose could not get through this fat barrier around your cells to energize your body mm-hmm. if you're eating meat. And so I, I that mind blown because until then the conventional wisdom was if you're diabetic type two diabetic you ate meat fish mm. uh, protein and you ate as little carbohydrate as you could and you tried to keep your weight down. Well, not easy if you're eating meat, by the way. Um, so. I left that convention. Um, my husband picked me up in the car. It was about an hour from the house in Oakland. And I, I said the thing that strikes terror in all men's hearts when their partners say, um, guess what? <laughs> and he said, what? And I said, I'm a vegan now. <laughs> and he said, oh, okay, I'm in. Um, which I'm happy to say we're, um, still married. Love it. Uh, that's a big part of it. I'm in. Um, so we uh, became vegan. Just, it's like, okay, let's do this. Let's try and experiment and, and become vegan. And so for six months, and I had just had my blood all tested as I do, as I want to encourage everyone to do get tested early to see if you do have diabetes. Don't wait until you're far along in the disease progression. So I just had my blood work done. And so for six months, no meat, none, no animal products, no dairy, particularly Mm. important, no dairy. And at six months, I went and saw my regular physician. And guess what? My numbers were down. My hemoglobin A1C, which is the most important test you take as a type 2 diabetic, was down three points. And she said, the doc said to me, that just doesn't happen at your age, Lynn. Mm. And I said, guess what? It just did. Um, 
So this is partly to illustrate that physicians are struggling too with how to deal with this pandemic of diabetes, which, you know, Mm -hmm. it used to be that no one got type 2 diabetes until they were quite mature. They would say in your 40s or 50s or later, and now kids are getting it. Hmm. So um, not only do we need to get real about our own grown-up selves, but let's not be um, feeding our children in such a way that we are making them sick when they are kids Hmm. uh, in a way that will stay with them for their whole lives. Hmm. So that so you made the change to become vegan for both of you. That was what two two and a half years ago. You said yes, but I will add, I'm no longer strictly vegan. We do right. eat some fish. We eat okay. um, some salmon. We live at the ocean. We have fresh fish here that's beautiful, and uh, some shrimp. Uh, but and and people who are strictly vegan are horrified by that. But um, I am I am mostly vegan, uh, and don't eat dairy, just eat some fish with my veggies. And, and from what you were saying before, I think there's a, dis- an, a further distinction to be made because it's not simply vegan, it's more plant-based food that, that you follow rather than just simply vegan. Good point. I, I hate to think that people are calling themselves vegan, thinking that is the ultimate wonderful healthy thing to be, and then they are stuffing their faces with sugar and flour and biscuits and cookies and cakes and pies mm. uh, and things that um, you can you can have a very unhealthy life being a vegan. Mm. Uh, what makes you healthy is plant-based whole food, or typically they say whole food plant-based. Um, mm. And that's where the magic is whole food, mm. not processed food. And, and that's actually a big part of what's wrong with dairy is the way the dairy is processed before you ever see it. You know, we've been led to believe that milk and cheese are these fresh, wonderful, wholesome products. No, they're not. Um, they are squeezed out of very miserable, unhappy cows who are filled with crap. You know, they are, they are fed bad stuff. They are uh, kept in uncomfortable, miserable places. They have antibiotics given to them. And then all that goes in your body when you eat the dairy. Hmm. And um, people often say, well, what's the one thing, you know, if you could just change one thing about people's diets, I think that might be it is, is knock off the dairy right now because even your, your pediatrician for your kids, they'll, they have to tell people frequently, the reason your kid's nose is running all the time is because they're eating dairy. Hmm. And it, this, is, this goes so against the grain of what, especially those of us my age, we were taught as children that milk was the healthiest possible thing. You know, it was just the best mm-hmm. possible thing. It's, it's not. promoted everywhere, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah. billions and billions of dollars were spent promoting dairy. Lots of money made. How, how easy? How easy was it to make the change to to adopt the the plant, the whole food plant based style? Was it was it difficult, or how did you find it? I, thank you for a great question, because I think people think it is difficult, and you hear baby steps. I, you know what? It's such a great adventure to discover all these foods that have been right in front of you all along. Gorgeous, mm. colorful, beautiful texture, wonderful stuff. And all you had to do was pick it up and eat it. <laughs> but you've been so busy eating your bangers and mash or your hamburgers um, or your Reuben sandwiches or whatever, you know, we or fried chicken. Um that you never paid any attention to these glorious fruits and vegetables that were, and also free. I mean, they're right out. I go out my back door and pick the, the, the most brilliant food you can eat. Can you guess what it is, Tony? Do you know what it is? Like the best food. If you're just going to pick one food, can you guess? Oh, it's too many avocado. 
No, Kale, although spinach. avocados are wonderful. Blackberries. Blackberries, Black okay. Blackberries. And I go right out in my backyard, and they grow wild. And I have planted the ones without the, the thorns and so on, and I've tried to grow those. Guess what? They are not as good. They don't taste as good as the wild ones that grow here. Right. And right. they they in such abundance that you get all chewed up and exhausted before <laughs> before the berries give out. You know, it's it's a little bit of work to pick them, but they're free. Right. You know, they're just right out there waiting for us. And we do grow some vegetables in a small plots and raised beds. And another another vegetable that I love to talk about because. Um, I, I have a recipe in, in my book and, and it grows every year. It just comes up on its own. You don't do a dang thing to it. It just pops up in the spring and uh, is brilliant and delicious. And you, you can sweeten it a little bit. And um, it's, I call it celery and drag. Do you know what I'm talking about? Celery and drag. Celery and drag. It's it's wonderful. We'll come What's back that? to that. We'll okay. come back to that. All right. We'll come back to that. But you you uh, your question is is it hard to make the transition? Hmm. It's changing habits, which is your bag, Tony. You know that that it's anything else that we do to improve our lives basically boils down to changing habits. Hmm. So instead of waking up and eating a donut that you buy at the corner, and you're going to make your own donuts. And you're going to freeze them and they're going to be a brilliant meal, but, and delicious. So you can still eat donuts, but you have to make them. You can't trust anyone else to make them good food. You can make them good food. So the hardest part about eating healthy is that you can't do it. It's very difficult to do it eating in restaurants um, and eating off the shelf in a grocery store. Something has to be chopped in your kitchen. Something mm. has to be boiled up, you know, or warmed. Mm. You have to cook a bit. You don't have to cook a lot, and it can be simple. doesn't Doesn't have to be really time consuming. But um, you can't just grab the package off the shelf. And if you want to understand that you can't do that, here's a habit for you. One that I highly recommend: read the label. Never put anything in your face without reading the label. And you are going to be shocked when you read, when you pick up that package of granola and it says healthy, you know, you're wholesome and so on. And you read, and the first ingredient is sugar. And then the second ingredient is another form of sugar. And then the third ingredient is, is some, you know, high fructose corn syrup or some other form of sugar. And I've actually tried this experiment myself going all down the cereal aisle in the grocery store, way down to the bottom one where you have to get on the floor of the grocery store and pull that sucker out and read it. There was not one cereal that I could purchase that didn't have sugar in it. Hmm. I guess so, they one of the ploys by the manufacturers of these products is they rely on most people never look at the um the, the label do they the food label no they don't people don't no and uh plus you've seen an ad on tv whatever so you see the thing on the front and they've been very careful to tell you how healthy it is hmm. uh and no it's not <laughs> but <laughs> you know if people get it's are convinced that it is so yeah you well, do have to it, look when was it that you, can you remember when you started to look at the labels? You know, I can't remember a specific time, but I found out that I was, I, I had gestational diabetes with my first pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So I was told then that I would likely develop type two diabetes, you know, as a thing, this is just going to happen. Mm. And, but no one I couldn't get anyone to give me a test or give me any kind of definitive anything until I was in my 40s. And I finally got someone to give me a, a hemoglobin A1C test. And sure enough, I was over the line. I was in diabetic territory. 
So that's probably about the time that I started looking so carefully at the labels because I knew at least that sugar was off the table. Hmm. Anything that, that was a kind of sugar, no, except a whole food sugar, like a piece of fruit, that was okay. Mm-hmm. But anything that was a processed sugar, I wanted to avoid. So yeah, I started reading labels really careful and was kind of um, <laughs> amazed at what I saw uh, in those labels. It's kind of scary. I have actually, I do a couple pages in the book because I talk about reading labels and measuring things. And um, there are so many different ways to say sugar. And so what the manufacturers are able to do is instead of having to list sugar first, they Mm. start listing it fourth or fifth, but with all these different names. Mm. And so you, so you go, okay, no, it's not first. It's not second. It's nothing. We're good. No, Mm. you're not good. And, um, you know, and salt of course is, and people often have said to me, well, I'm on a limited salt diet. I can only have 2000 milligrams a day. And so, um, I have to be really, so I can't put salt in the, the thing is, if you really are paying attention, you can sprinkle salt on the food that you make Mm -hmm. and it makes it taste better. And that's okay because you can sprinkle a heck of a lot of salt on things before you get to that 2000 milligrams a day. But you can't eat anything off the shelf, almost anything that isn't going to put you over the limit with one or two servings. Because mm-hmm. everything that is manufactured for us to eat is full of salt and sugar because those things we're trained up to think are good. That's mm-hmm. our palates are trained to think those things are just swell. And you probably know this, Tony, but a lot of people don't know that that there is a whole field of food chemistry training people to make foods craveable. They're mm. the craveability guys. And they their whole take on life chemistry is how to make those Pringles or those Doritos or whatever they are so craveable that you literally can't eat just one. It's not just a slogan. That's how they live and die. They don't want you to eat just one. They want you to eat the whole bag and then eat another bag and then buy another bag. That's what they're in business to do. And that is what's making people sick. Craveability. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Habits and Health podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. If you are looking for deep support to create the health and life you want, we invite you to consider one-on-one coaching sessions with Tony. Coaching sessions give you personalised guidance to fit your unique goals and life situation. Only a limited number of spots are available, but you can easily get started by booking a free introductory call at tonywinyard.com. Now back to the show. You mentioned just now about your your book, um, Brownies for Breakfast. What was it? What was the inspiration for that? Why did you write that, and how how has it been received since it was published? Kind of a incident that made me forced me to do it was that my youngest daughter, who is a medical, she's a nurse practitioner, and she called me one afternoon and said, "Ma, I checked a guy in today who's about your age." And he's a vet and um, he was coming into the hospital to have his legs removed. And of course, that's never a fun thing for me or for them. And But I sat with him and we talked and I told him that you were trying to get this book written about type 2 diabetes. And he said, oh, and, and she said he got tears in his eyes. And he said, please tell her for me to finish that book. I wish I had had that book. We need that book. So how how could I not do it? I mean, um, it's a, it's a disease that has severe consequences if you ignore it. And so many of us ignore it because there are no symptoms. You don't know Mm. that you're a diabetic until it's in a way too late. Mm. The difference in my life was that I was told as a younger woman that I was likely to be. And as I was watching, I was paying attention. Most type two diabetics 
are surprised when in some routine exam they take the the test and they're out of healthy limits. Um, And often it's people in their 50s, 60s, 70s who are finding out for the first time that they have type 2 diabetes and it's been damaging their bodies for decades. Hmm. So, um, and there are no symptoms until they're severe symptoms. Hmm. So when did the book come out? It came out in June of um, 2020. Um, is it aimed specifically? No, I'm wrong, Tony. 2021. I'm getting, <laughs> these couple <laughs> of years have been so weird, right? We've been locked up at home. Oh, is, it, okay. is it aimed specifically at people with type 2 and is it aimed at a particular age group or just anyone with the condition? The full title of the book is Brownies for Breakfast, a cookbook for diabetics and the people who love them. Right. Um, because, in fact, you will benefit from this if you are type 1 or if you have a family member who's diabetic or if you just don't want to be a diabetic. Um, it's it kind of a, a sneaky way of encompassing everybody. I wanted diabetics to know it was for them, particularly for them. But it's it's a book I think anyone can benefit from who's trying to eat healthy, healthier. Well, and also there's pretty high figures of people with pre-diabetes, isn't there? Yes, and the the whole idea of pre-diabetes is a little funky. It's if if your numbers, I think now they they want your blood glucose below one twenty or one twenty five. At one time they were saying one forty or one forty five, but if hmm. you're up there in the one twenty range any higher than that, it's not really pre-diabetes. It's, hey, (laughs) hey, 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 Um, you know, shape up. It's not pre-anything. It's like, Mm. you need to fix this now. Mm. And there's there's now a number of connections with diabetes and, and Alzheimer's as well, isn't there? Well, it's so interesting that, um, yes, they are finding out that this connection between gut and brain, that they're talking about gut-brain health, um, yes, if, if you've been eating this way, crappy food, uh, your brain is suffering just as the rest of your body is suffering. Mm. And another thing I talk about in the book, Tony, and you are familiar with this, very much so, is that you can't talk about food and diet without talking about sleep for one thing, movement, exercise for another. But people don't understand that there's this tight circular relationship between sleep and food. Mm. If you are eating badly, you're going to sleep badly. Mm -hmm. And if you're sleeping badly, conversely, you're going to eat badly. Mm-hmm. Uh, because this gut-brain connection goes all haywire. Mm. So not only do I want to encourage you to eat a whole food plant-based diet, but I want to encourage you to change the habit, here's your word, of when you eat, because most of us eat too late in the day. Mm. And you're... And this goes, I, the first conversation I had about this was with an Ayurvedic practitioner. And in, in the Ayurvedic tradition, they've known this for a long time, and it's very much a part of what they teach. But Western medicine has been a little bit behind. If you eat too late in the day, your body wants to be done digesting. It wants to digest in the middle of the day. Hmm. And it's all heated up, cranked up when the sun is high, and that's when it wants to work. When the sun goes low, your body doesn't want to still be working on that digestive stuff. It wants to switch to a whole set of other things that it does only in your sleep. And I always think of it as this little repair crew, you know, that comes out when the traffic stops. It's the repair crew that comes out and they work all night. And Mm. it's the repair crew that fixes your brain. Literally, it cleanses your brain tissues, your cells. And in order to have that functioning, well, you need to stop eating 
as early as you can in the afternoon, three mm-hmm. o'clock in the afternoon, four, maybe five. But most of us don't even think about eating in the late afternoon. You know, we come home, we've worked and we've driven home, whatever. And so it's seven, eight, nine o'clock at night. And many of us are still in front of the tube eating a little more ice cream. Okay, I see you out there. I know you're doing this um, at 11 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. And what you're doing is you're setting yourself up to have your gut all crazy the next day. Mm. And your repair crew hasn't been able to work because it's going to be up all night dealing with the ice cream. Mm-hmm. And um, a, a super important thing to do for your health. And, and no, I, you know, how do we define health? If you're struggling with weight loss, as so many of us are, try this. Try it. Just try it. It's not, you know, most of us who struggle with with weight and weight loss have tried a million different things. Did you ever try not eating after 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon? And, of course, now a lot of people are calling that intermittent fasting and doing shows about it and being the intermittent fasting person. Well, it's just not eating for a while. That's all that is. And the, the healthiest time to not eat, as far as my reading and, and research is concerned, is in the late afternoon, evening. Don't eat late. It's important. I think, though, for the majority of people in Western countries, you know, America, England, or Europe, and UK, so on, we've just been so conditioned all our lives to have um, a smaller meal at lunchtime and our big main meal at dinner time, which I, I mean, here for most people in the UK is six, seven, eight o'clock. I, I presume it's similar in the States. And for many people, if you suggest anything different, it's just totally alien. It's just very hard to, to comprehend. Deep seated habits, cultural yeah. habits. Absolutely right. And in this country, at least people, the stress is so amped up people driving an hour in the morning and then driving another hour at night and people picking their kids up here and dropping them off there. And so sitting down for a meal just kind of takes this back seat really. And, and eating has become driving through or eating in the car or eating when you're finally home and finally the kids and so on and you're exhausted. It's now eight, nine o'clock at night and, and you plunk down in a chair somewhere and, and because you, you no longer have the energy to really prepare a meal or, or put it on the table. So we've kind of lost that culture of the table, hmm. you know, and in the UK, tea time at four or whenever it is, um, that became a meal in a lot of homes too. Hmm. Um, which that's a, a fine time to have a small meal. It's just hmm. don't have that other one. Don't have those fish and chips at nine or eight Mm. after you've had your small meal at four or five in the afternoon. So Mm. yeah, it's culture and habit to a very Mm. great degree and big argument about, well, what's the most important meal of the day? And, um, you know, what, what should you eat for breakfast? And the answer to all that is just don't eat crap. Okay. Uh, eat whole foods, (laughs) plant-based and maybe the most important meal of the day is the one you don't eat, you know? Um, Mm. And I don't like, I don't keep a journal about what I eat and I don't measure a lot of stuff. And in, in this book, Brownies for Breakfast, I don't encourage people to measure or keep track of stuff unless you have to, unless you've got a potassium thing that you have to keep track of or a sodium thing, go ahead and keep track. But I think food should be joyful and delicious and wonderful and communal. I, I want you to sit and eat with someone that you like or love maybe um and not eat alone you know your your digestion is better the the foods that you eat are better if you're eating with other people people are watching you and you eat more slowly if you're talking and waving your hands as i do um if if you are eating with other people so if you've come home crazy and starving and you're plunked down in a chair at eight or nine o'clock, 
in front of the TV alone now. The kids are doing homework and, you know, so that's not a healthy way to eat. It's not. You're 75 years old. You don't look any, anything like that. And there's not many people, uh, not only the fact that you look a lot young, but there's not many people start to write books at, at 75. I mean, as we were discussing before we started recording, most people your age are not, it's not simply that they're, they're looking a lot older, but their, their body, their, act, their actions, their, um, everything, everything about them is not, it's very different to the way you are. Let's put it that way. Well, <clears throat> inside, <laughs> I feel every one of my 75 years, some days, but um, I, I am absolutely convinced, Tony, that, that if, if you take pretty good care of yourself, I mean, things happen, you know, you can't prevent all disease. You can't, you can't prevent accidents that are going to happen to you, but if, but you can certainly keep your mobility and, and your, um, engagement with life and so many things intact by eating well, sleeping well and moving your buns. And uh, to me, a big part of the advantage of the exercise that I do is that it's social. And this becomes an issue with a lot of people my age, older, not, not as old as I am, but you, you need a gang. You need a, uh, some folks that you hang with. And in my case, it seems to be, and of course we've had COVID that we had to dealt, deal with, but in my case, it seems to be the ladies that I work out with and they range in age from late thirties, forties to, uh, eighties. And we have a wonderful instructor who is very conscious of the different ages and so on, but you have to keep moving. You have to keep moving and movement. It takes all different forms. I highly recommend walking, walking, walking. Any kind of walking that you do is great. Dancing. Mm -hmm. Hello. We, we should, we should keep dancing. Shouldn't we? And um, so thank you for your compliment about how I look, uh, and I'm vain as hell. So, you know, I put mascara on and I try and keep my, uh, hair in order and so on. But, mm -hmm. um, a lot of it is, is tude, you know, attitude, um, never give up, <laughs> right? Just uh, to me, there's so much about my life that I love and want to enjoy. I just had my second grandchild. He's crying in the other room right now. I don't know if you can hear him, but um, uh, there's so much to live for. And I, I don't want mm -hmm. to make my life difficult for other people in my family. I know what that feels like. I know what it's like in a family to have to take care of people. I've, done a certain amount of it myself. And so if we can keep ourselves on our feet and smiling and having fun and doing things, that benefits not only us, but it benefits everybody around us, which is huge. Well, I think also one of the things, I mean, you've touched upon, you've mentioned throughout the, the recording I think one of the, your, not trick is the wrong word. I can't think of the right word, but your, the way I think that you're able to, to maintain your, your youthful looks and controlling the diabetes and so on is because too many people, I think, focus on the one thing which they think is going to be the golden bullet. And that may be, whether that be nutrition or it might be sleep or it might be, but it's too often one thing people focus on. And I, I think it's much better to focus on a few different things because they all, they're all so interactive. It's the sleep, it's the nutrition, it's the movement, it's the mindset, and, and it's all, all of them play such a vital role. They are all connected and connected much more tightly than I ever understood until I started mm. this deep study of these things. I mean, they yeah. are chemically connected, mm. literally connected. Um, so the sleep 
the food, the movement, um, and the mindset. And I, I never understood Tony until fairly recently that when we talk about, um, uh, stress and mindset and so on, that's chemical stuff happening in your body. So Mm -hmm. when you are having a bad day, when, when you've got a thing happening in your mind, you are sending the cortisol or whatever it is, the, the chemicals into your gut and they are changing how your body is reacting to food. So you can't just fix a thing and expect all of it to work better. It all needs to be functioning as highly as you can make it function, which isn't as difficult as it sounds. It's just um, you know, and I, I love to keep referring to my status as a granny, right? Grandmas know stuff. Uh, one of the things we know is that it's, it's love, affection, community, friendships, and food, and sleep, and dancing as much as you can. We, I mean, we're we're getting pressed for time. I mean, we we talked about oh. we've touched upon your your book a couple of times. On the subject of books, is there what what book comes to mind that's really had a big impact on you? Oh, I you know there are so many books. I come from a bookie family and and was reading all my life. And I remember one of the ones that uh, very early in my life was huge was one that people probably have forgotten about decades ago, but it's called I Married Adventure by Osa Johnson. And it, it was in this beautiful designed cover that had zebra print all over the cover. So as a child, I just thought, okay, now there's a book. What a great book. But the, the Johnsons were the first people to do nature documentary movies. And so they flew all over Africa taking these incredible films of wild animals. And, um, as a child, I was just completely captivated and then read the book and was completely captivated again. And it will probably seem very old fashioned if we read it now, but that is the the book I would have to say. And it's still on my mantle in my living room. It's still right there because adventure, <laughs> right? Who doesn't want adventure? And would, do you know, would that still be available on, say, Amazon? Oh, I'm sure. It's called oh. I Married Adventure by Osa Johnson. It's a classic. So you might have to buy it on Amazon and, you know, use terrible condition or something. But, um, and, and the Johnsons have become more and more appreciated for what pioneers they were doing hmm. this documentary work, um, filming stuff such an interesting life. And my husband is a pilot. We have a little, um, J three antique Piper cub plane. And I always feel like when I'm flying with him and the air is, the windows are open and it's made out of fabric that, that I am Osa Johnson flying <laughs> over Africa, having an adventure. Lynn, if, if people want to find out more about you and your book and and you know and everything about you, where are the best places to look? Social media, your website, and so on. Okay, uh, I'm all over social media. Lynn Parmiter Bowman is my Facebook page. P A R M I T E R in the middle of Lynn, spelled with an E. Bowman, B O W M A N. Uh, I have a YouTube channel, Lynn Bowman. I have a website, which I'm. I promise you I'll work on more. I'll put more stuff up. There's never enough time to do all this, but it gives you all the, the kind of basic links to things. And that's just lynnbowman.com. Uh, I hope you'll drop by and join my list. It's got Lynn's list. You can sign up and then I will be sending you not often, but periodically a great recipe that I've developed that is going to help you eat better and think better and sleep better. Um, Love sharing recipes like that with people. And um, what am I forgetting, Tony? Uh, Instagram, yeah, I'm there, Lynn Bowman, uh, Lynn Parmeter Bowman. Uh, and if you I'm, look, if you Google me, Lynn Bowman, I, I will probably pop up. Um, well, got, all these links, all these links will be in the show notes. So I'll, oh, I'll include okay. them in the show notes. Okay. So before we finish, I mean, there's a couple of things I want to ask you before we finish. One is, I believe you've got 
a habit that you would recommend for people to to use or to, to adopt in their lives maybe I do uh, it's it sounds impossible until you try and do it and you will love the effect of it it's eating dark greens at least twice maybe three times a day doesn't that sound just impossible it's totally possible it's easy it's delicious you do it with smoothies you do it with omelets you, you can do it all different ways and I'll tell you how in the book but people are not eating dark greens enough and they are, they have a huge effect on your digestion on your skin on your um, your overall health dark greens chard kale spinach arugula my favorite which in the UK is called rocket lettuce I think mm-hmm. um, yes so that's a habit I highly recommend dark greens and lastly, what, do you have a, a quotation that you uh, particularly like? I do. <laughs> this is uh, Alice Roosevelt Longworth. She was the daughter of uh, Teddy Roosevelt, president of this country at one time. And she was notoriously sort of a bad girl. And I've used this quote so many times. And it's, if you can't say anything nice about someone, please sit next to me. I love gossip. Where where did you first come across that? I don't even remember. It's so old. But I'm a believer in the power of conversation and the power. You know, men have always belittled it as gossip, what women say to one another. And to me, one of the most wonderful things about women, as opposed to, and love men, married one, have a son, all that. But we, we women share information freely with each other. I mean, you might be in a dressing room in a store and somewhere and you'll hear something. You'll go, wait, what did you just say? No kidding. I didn't know that. You make friends in all kinds of places. Um, just chatting with people and sharing information informally. So the idea of sit next to me uh, has always appealed to me. I I love it if people sit next to me and talk to me and tell me things. Lynn, it's been a a real pleasure. Thank you for sharing your information and I wish you great success with the book. And uh, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. I love what you're doing and I wish you greater, even greater success with it. It's been great to meet you. Lovely. Thank you, Lynn. Thanks for tuning in to the Habits and Health Podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. Sign up for email updates and learn about coaching and workshop opportunities at TonyWinyard.com. See you next time on the Habits and Health Podcast.